This podcast is brought to you by On Track Studio. Welcome back, dear valued listener, to Eminem the Podcast. Hi, Michelle. G'day, Matthew. Great to see you. Great to see you. So good to be back at On Track Studio, where today we have a fascinating and wonderful M theme. Michelle, what is our M theme for today? We do. We've got a we've got a theme, and we've got a special guest. So our theme today is motorhome. That's the word we're exploring. Motorhome. Mm, motorhome, mm. and I love saying it. It's a great word. We also have a very special guest. Um, uh, Jeff Connolly. We welcome him. He is a um, resident of the Sunshine Coast. He used to work for the AFP and the military. Mm. He's a very interesting man who's 65 years old. He's also my father's brother and he is my uncle. So we're very excited to welcome Jeff, who's going to have a bit of a chat with us today about having been out on the road for three years in his motorhome. Welcome, Jeff. And welcome some of his experiences. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And how are you today? Very well, thanks. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm glad that you acknowledged the bloodline there because I thought two Connollys, what's happening? But exactly. That's right. We spell it differently to Billy Connolly. He's <laughs> oh, we're I know. We're not as funny I as I learned him. that the hard way the other day with you, didn't mm-hmm. I? Didn't you what? <laughs> Welcome, Jeff. Welcome. We are really excited to have a chat with you today about your experience with Motorhome. So before we kick off the episode today, Michelle, uh, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are able to explore and experience. We acknowledge the roads that we have laid on this land allow us to experience the immense beauty and magnificent nature that has existed long before our arrival. Just quickly, before we jump into pestering Jeff with lots of questions, Michelle, you know, you've recently moved back from WA. I have. And thank God. Mm. And I believe you crossed the Nullarbor a few times. Several times, uh, each time with great drama, I must say. Yes, we, um, we came over the Nullarbor twice in Norman. Norman was our 1991 Toyota Coaster, who on our, uh, on our first trip over, he blew his um, radiator in Oruru. Oruru is a place in the depths of South Australia. It's hot. It's green and it's sheepy. There's, there's lots of sheep. It's the only place I've ever been stopped on a road to let the sheep cross. So, yeah, we did that a couple of times. Um, Oruru was the first drama. The second drama was um, in Warwick. We got just over the Queensland border and Norman on the Cunningham Highway on Australia Day said, I've had enough. I'm done. This is it. I'm stopping right here. His whole motor seized. He has to. He, oh. he, don't, he don't go anymore. You don't go anymore. So yeah, we um we were towed. It was all very exciting, and um I'm very very glad it's over. And it's very funny because the reason that I was doing all of this, you know, getting out on the road and so on, was to relax and get back to get in touch with my, my, myself. And all I did was stress out. It's a big journey though. Yeah, it is. It and is. can I ask you, Michelle, like on those uh, journeys and voyages to and from uh, Queensland to WA, did you notice a lot of uh, motorhomes, caravans, RVs? Was this something that caught your attention? There are a lot of people out there. I've got to say there are less than I'd expected. We actually expected the Nullarbor to be extraordinarily busy, you know, sort of busy as Burke Street on our final trip. The reason for that was that 
that the Kimberley was closed. And so mm. a lot of the truck traffic that used to be able to go that way was having to, you know, Definitely. do another 2,000 k's to get mm. to where they were going. We didn't see that much of an increase. I think, though, that there's certainly a lot of people out there having fun. There's a lot of motorhomes. There's a lot of caravans mm. and um, mostly older people. And mostly people, I guess, who are retired and who are maybe out there for a year or so. Yeah. Mm, excellent. Which leads us into asking Jeff here a couple of questions about his experience. So, Jeff, I've heard that you took to the road and motored around the country for approximately three years, visiting most states and territories. Can you share with us, did you travel in an RV or tow a caravan? Yes. Yeah, so well, when we first left, we had a, uh, a small pop-top caravan and uh, a four-wheel drive. Uh, after 12 months, we decided that we were going to continue doing it for an extended period of time. So we found we missed a few of the creature comforts like toilet and laundry and, and that sort of thing. So we upgraded after 12 months to a dual-axle, fully off-road capable caravan and mm. upgraded the four-wheel drive as well at that time to enable us to take on some of the uh, tougher tracks as well. Awesome. So so for the first 12 months, you had to pull into caravan parks and use the facilities? We were, we were self-sufficient to a degree, but uh, it had minimal uh, solar power. There wasn't uh, any um, washing machine, things of that nature. It also had, uh, we wanted an island bed. So with the smaller vans, you can only approach it from one corner, bottom corner. So if one of us had to get up during the night, you'd disturb the other ones. So, oh, yeah, of course. So it was both creature comfort and facilities and the ability to, to take two. Off roads, mm. so the incentive there. So yeah, okay. And was it at that twelve month mark? And you said we. So were you travelling with? Yes, with my wife. With your wife, beautiful. What's her name? Alva. Alva, beautiful. So was it at around the twelve month mark that yourself and Alva decided either we upgrade or or was that not even a consideration? When we first left, the departure was prompted by uh, we'd had a weekend away, and on the way home, Alva said. I would like to do this and not have to go home at all, which was like a red rag to a bull to me. I said, yeah. You've got to be serious about this because that's exactly what I want to do. So if you want to do it, then it's on. Wow. So within six weeks, we had the house rented and everything set up. And I said, I think we'll be on the road for three years. I think we need to take that amount of time to cover the, most of the points that we wanted to. And that, it was actually three and a half years uh, travelling. Wow. So it was always the intention to be out there long term. But it's just, as I say, the... Uh, the smaller van became a bit troublesome. It was just a bit too much like hard work setting up all the time. So having a caravan uh, makes it a lot easier to pull over on the side of the road. Mm. Or anywhere, just step into the van, have a cup of tea, and that's something which you can't do with a pop-top. It takes a lot more setting up. So each rig is – everybody needs to choose the rig that suits them and their purposes. So the smaller van was fine. It would have done us for small trips. But for long term, you're living in it long protracted periods, you really want the extra creature comfort. So we did anyway. Yeah. It's uh, certainly um, a part of it though to be able to get out and test how you live on the on the road mm. and what's going to suit you best. You probably can't do that until you actually yeah, mm. test it out, go out there. Yeah, until you put your foot down on the gas. So obviously you guys had a plan and then after that 12-month period you went, let's revisit that plan and make it just a little bit more comfy. That's right. Mm. Because we're going to do this. Indeed. Mm. That's right, yep. Whereabouts were you when you made that decision? Uh, in Perth, uh, actually, we'd been across the top and uh, through WA, and uh, I actually took a DVD from the Caravan Park office, and it was a DVD promoting the Gibb River Road and showed a particular style of caravan taken on this Gibb River Road. And I was just entranced and said, that's what I mean. That's the one. <laughs> is that off-road, is it, the Gibb River Road? 
Yes. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, so... That's, mm. I know the Gibb River Road. That's actually known for being very, very difficult to drive and not any vehicle can go on there because they get mangled. Yes, there's uh, a lot of debris strewn across it. There's, there's chassis of what was once a caravan that just get left behind because the recovery costs are phenomenal. So <sighs> no, it's the middle Some of nowhere. People, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So, so as you're driving, you're just you're driving past all of the, the memories of what wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> the skeletons. The roadkill is <laughs> Yes. That's amazing. Yes. That's amazing. So you en- ended up after 12 months having an off-road vehicle and then you were inspired by the DVD that you got at a caravan park to tackle that road. Yeah, well, just to, to be able to take on, to get off the blacktop, we'd uh, mm. been on uh, predominantly uh, highways but just wanted to be able to explore some of the more far-flung places. So. Yep. And that was like a baseline, yeah, that we've got to be able to do the Gibb River Road. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I think from memory, Michelle, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Jeff, but I think from memory... You have to take that road at a certain point. It's sort of the top of WA. Uh, you've got the Kimberleys above you, and I think if you want to go inland, there's one road. To be from, able to access yeah, that area. Yeah, from memory. Right. Yeah, and even tour vehicles that go exploring in that, that range and head up to the Kimberley, they, they have to have buses that are fully off-road. Like, they have to mm. be souped-up mega versions because this road... Will otherwise rattle them this into road, non-existence. This road has a certain type of way about it, you know what I mean? Mm. And as you say, it's not a blacktop road. Road, you know, it's it's a much more challenging drive. There's plenty of those in Australia. <laughs> That's right. You can travel basically from Kununurra across to Broome. You can go across Blacktop all the way, which takes you down south of the Gibb River Road, and you can visit Bungle Bungles, which which we mm. and some terrific places. But if you want to get into the more remote places and up to the the coast, WA, then you need to take the Gibb River Road to do yep. that. So you can actually get to the Kimberley uh, region on the Blacktop. But the, the different experience is above it. It's high. Yeah. And Jeff, from your backgrounding that you've been giving me, me, I understand that it's some of those landscape features that you were really keen to see. That was part of the driver for your trip. That's right. Yes, I certainly had some items that that I wanted to to visit, including Ayers Rock, the Bungle Bungles. I wanted to get to Ningaloo Reef. I'd visited Ningaloo Reef, which is uh, in Exmouth, mm. top of WA. And I always wanted to go back there to swim with whale sharks. And uh, so uh, just to experience outback life and to visit communities and get immersed into the, uh, the remote townships without any restrictions on, you know, just a two-hour off the bus, take some photos, get back on. Yeah. It's not a real experience, is it? That's no, right. Yeah. That's right. So I certainly did have some places, as did Alba, that uh, were on our list to visit. But it was also just uh, experiencing that lifestyle. Mm, Absolutely. And can I ask you, Jeff, had you done a lot of domestic travel prior to this? I have, yes. As a young fellow, uh, when I was 21, I put a backpack on and headed off to Europe on a one-way ticket to London and did what most of us did in the 70s. If you Mm -hmm. haven't been to Europe, you haven't. What's your excuse sort of thing? Mm -hmm. So I got the taste for travel and uh, independent uh, moving around as a young bloke, and you have travelled extensively in Australia prior to that as well. I'll interject and let you know that he came home with long hair and an earring. Long hair and an earring. Mm-mm. Yes, mm. and a beard that you could plait. So it looked like <laughs> a bit. Uh, I look longingly at the guys from ZZ Tops again. That was me once upon a time. <laughs> I love it. You know, the key there is that it was the seventies. Jeff, all is forgiven. Oh, yeah, I love that it's a hop, skip, and a jump into the AFP. <laughs> Yes, beautiful. So that look, I want to talk to you about that, Jeff, if you don't mind. So um, as we heard from Michelle at the start, you were based in Canberra and you worked for the AFP and you operated as a reservist in the armed forces and you served in the peacekeeping corps. 
So once that wrapped up for you, you moved to Queensland and hit the road for three years. How long was it in between leaving Canberra and that position and living in Queensland that it took to make that decision to hit the road? Uh, about seven years. We moved up to the Sunshine Coast and, uh, as I say, over time, uh, we had done a caravan trip whilst we were living in Canberra, actually. We went hired a caravan and went across the Nullarbor, took three months long service leave and did a, a, a lengthy trip. And the remarkable thing was when we got back to Canberra, we handed back the caravan, and Alva said, well, that's it, I never want to do that again. <laughs> and I was a bit crestfallen. I thought, yeah. I, I thought it was a hoot. I really thought it was great fun. So I was, a, I was a bit taken aback when uh, some years later she said, I'd like to do this and not go back. I said, you are the same one I took. Yeah. What, why do you think she said that about that? Nullaby I trip? have no idea. I didn't question it because she said she wanted to do it. And I said, yes, let's do it. So I just didn't give her a chance to back down. Really. Yeah. You've heard of the woman's prerogative, haven't you? <laughs> I love how, how he, he struck while the iron was hot. In six weeks, right, we're ready to go. Yeah, the house is house on the market, rented. good to go. <laughs> New band wired up, plugged up, got all the good yeah. set to go, let's go. Brilliant. Lock the house, we're away. So six weeks from when Alva gave the green light and you were on the road. So I'm wondering, um, and you said before that you already kind of knew that it would be around the three-year mark for discovering what you wanted to discover. How much of this adventure was planned? And how much did you leave up to the turn left or turn right gods? When we left, I had a, a 12-month plan, which was fairly broad, but it encompassed the direction that we were going to head. That 12-month plan lasted 12 days. That's <laughs> <laughs> all good plans. We, we found ourselves <laughs> in Tamworth just after Christmas, and all the bunting and everything was around there for the Country Music Festival. Oh, of course. I wasn't a country music fan, but... Get caught up in the atmosphere. Thought, this could be quite good fun. Why don't we stay for that? But that was still about four weeks down the track. So we did a detour, went up into the into the national parks and, and wandered around, did some bushwalking for a couple of weeks. And so that changed the whole complexion of the trip through all the timings out. And then we had a, a major event in the house that sprung a major leak. So we had to come back to the Sunshine Coast. So I did have a cunning plan, and it was turned upside down in a short space of time. So having that open time frame was very beneficial. A lovely yeah. way to be detoured, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and it seems natural. So mm. you sort of had that plan and then you realise after 12 days plus a few other bits and bobs that came along the way that the plan needs to be very flexible and we need to be able to turn left or mm. right. Mm. If know? something turns us on, we'll stay. Well, and I imagine as well, Jeff, and you can let me know about this, but there may have been times where you had already planned to turn left but road was closed, roads were flooded, road was this, road was that, you know, you know. You can't predict everything that's going to happen. There certainly was, and there's a military maxim that states that a battle plan will last until the first shot. <laughs> mayhem prevails. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's great to have a plan, so you've got some idea, but uh, flexibility is, uh, is a key. And what you're suggesting here was definitely the case, and one example I like to cite is that we'd been down to uh, Lightning Ridge, uh, northern New South Wales, which is... Fascinating place. And from there, we're heading to Carnarvon Gorge, which is due north, about 500 k's. As we were heading north, we got to a town called St George, and up ahead, I could see the blackest sky I've ever seen. I said, there's massive storms happening up there. Mm. This doesn't look good. So I said, right, a quick change of plan. So from George, from St George, we took a left turn west and went 300 k's out to Cunnamulla. Had a few days there, then went north uh, to Charleville, 
for a couple of days there and then back east again to get back onto that same road that we've been on St George. Mm-hmm. And the sky was clear. We travelled up to Carnarvon Gorge in lovely clear weather. So mm-hmm. it was about a one-week detour to avoid getting wet. So the ability to be able to make those sort of plans on the go is another benefit of not having any really strict, rigid um, time frames to go with. So, mm-hmm. And that, that occurred on a few occasions. There was actually another time we were in um, Moree in northern New South Wales. I've got hot spas there. Mm. And I was just sitting back relaxing in the spa. And I was earwigging as uh, one of the chaps beside me was talking to his friends about this caravan pole site that he'd been to the week prior. And he was describing it. I thought, that sounds fantastic. And we were due to head south the next day. So I got back to the van and said, we aren't going south. We're going east. There's a town we need to go to. There's a park. And it was, was wonderful. So... Yeah, again, that was just another simple example of uh, being able to change plans on, on the run. Mm. Mm. You can always go back to, I suppose, to the place that you'd planned to be. So it's ultimately flexible, isn't it, really? That's right, yeah. And, Jeff, have your experiences on the road for this three, three and a half years changed you? And if they have, how? I've always been somewhat adventurous and prepared to take on a challenge, but I think the experiences there help to reinforce the fact that um, you can overcome obstacles if you've got an open mind into how you're going to approach situations and uh, contend with them and be prepared to, to have a go, to do something that's a little bit out of the ordinary and uh, out, of the, out of the mainstream. Mm, so, mm. Uh, yes, it's reinforced my belief that that's, uh, that's a good way to live life, to be prepared to, uh, to take on challenges. Yeah. Mm. What was the um, the background that you gave me, the improvise, adapt and overcome? Can you tell us about that? Yes, well, uh, it came to mind because it, it, might, it may appear that with a, a military and a police background that somebody of that ilk is very rigid in their thinking, but uh, I was explaining to you that uh, one of the maxims of the Special Forces is improvise, adapt and overcome. But you need to be able to deal with the situation and if you haven't got the tools or the wherewithal that would normally address that issue then improvise with what you've got, adapt the tools that you've got and, and overcome it in, in a way that uh, gets the job done. So that sort of attitude is, uh, is very helpful. And also, um, whilst people think uh, you know, military is a very rigid structure, as with the police force, as I said earlier, a battle plan lasts until the first shot, and then you've got to be prepared to go with the flow. Mm. Yep. So in both of those professions, um, it helps if you can be fairly quick-thinking, manoeuvrable, and ready to go with uh, changed circumstances. If you can't mm. do that, then uh, you're not going to do very well. And, and, and staying with your objective, knowing what that is and focusing on it, not, not necessarily the symptoms of, of, of the problem that you're facing. Exactly. They don't deal with uh, the obvious. A simple example would be somebody says, the car won't start, I need a new battery. Well, no. The issue is that the car, you can't get the motor started. Another issue would be just simply to push start it, get the car started. A simple example of adapting and overcoming to the situation. Don't look to replacing an item, look to getting around the issue. I love it. I love that analogy. And I tell you what, it's absolutely critical to be ready for anything while you're out on the road. And mm. your point about flooding and um, fire is a really good one. Mm. That That's what you face throughout Australia at different times of the year. So being flexible and also being in touch with the locals, asking people mm. what the best detour is and that, you know, the detour that isn't go- going to be flooded in half an hour. Yeah, I think your point there, Jeff, about work in the past relating to this lifestyle, connecting it is really interesting to me because you're very right. You know, I would consider not ever having worked in law or any kind of a capacity anywhere near that, that from an outsider looking in, that it would be very rigid and structured and, you know, you have to follow, but what 
you managed to communicate to me then is even within that, you have to be adaptable. You have to be able to find a way because you never really know if it's going to be a turn left or a turn right. Mm. I love that. And also that the people who are executing campaigns, let's say, are are people who are given a lot more autonomy than I realised. So that was something that I was really interested in what we talked about, Jeff, that, yeah, if you could maybe just give us a bit of a rundown on on that concept. I've spoken about the the police force. In the military, when orders are given, whether it's from the the commander-in-chief down to a corporal giving his orders to six soldiers, it starts with the mission. And the mission, when I joined the Army in 1981, it was given in a certain way and it, it changed over time. The change to a situation whereby the mission is, your mission is to take this hill and hold it and defend it for a period of 48 hours. In order that, the commander's objective can be met, which is such and such. Mm. Mm. So, yes, taking the hill is important, but if, for example, a commander says, I cannot take that hill, but I know that the commander's intent is to keep a roadway clear, I can achieve that objective by doing something a little different. I will mm. bypass the hill, but I'll dominate the ground on the other side. So there's always that latitude to say, here's what we want you to do, but keep in mind the big picture. And if you can get there by some other means, then do so. Mm. I found that really fascinating because the the strategic thinking that's required all the time when you're travelling around with your home on your back, as it were, like a turtle, there's a lot of similarities, really. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it speaks to me of the need for the capacity for creativity. Yes. You know? So, like, we, we understand the instruction given, but there is always going to be a capacity for creativity around how that is achieved. And the bureaucracy needs to exist. It mm. needs to exist to administer the, 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 the um, behemoth that is the military. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's, uh, I think... Wonderful to know that you can use all of those skills out on the road as well as defending Australia. That's brilliant. Love it. So, Jeff, um, having visited so much of this country, would you say that you feel your attitudes and perhaps understanding of the country and its peoples in relation to, say, infrastructure, uh, traffic, trucks, uh, you know, towns and cities, do you think that it's changed your thinking? Uh, probably hasn't changed, but it's certainly reinforced and enhanced my knowledge and understanding of the difference between big cities, regional towns and, and tiny outposts. So uh, there are and there are benefits and disadvantages to, to all of those, but uh, I, I found that what it brought home to me was that I could actually live in a rural city that's uh, not... Huge. I don't need bright lights, big city. I guess you know when you're a young person, you you're looking for nightclubs and all this sort of thing. But uh, the infrastructure and the community vibe, if you like, to to use a term, mm. uh, within some of those places is just wonderful. Mm. And just within a few days, you see the smiles on people's faces, and it's it's such a, a more laid back, relaxed sort of lifestyle. The, the community spirit is so strong to muck in and help each other out. So that's that's lovely to see and witness that firsthand. Mm. Um, so that was. Uh, Certainly encouraging, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's interesting. So yes, it hadn't, I guess, changed, but certainly reinforces the understanding that people can actually be comfortable living in places like Winton or yeah. Longreach or whatever you see that. Absolutely, I think that an ingredient that goes into people's happiness and people's welcoming nature is the sky. The sky in rural, regional Australia is breathtaking isn't it it's breathtaking at night when you've got 
the Milky Way. Mm. It's like you're swimming in the Milky Way and it's beautiful during the day when it feels like the sun is a little bit closer to the earth and it's like Australia's sort of reaching up to the sky mm. and you're standing right there. It's just, yeah, beautiful. The colours are more vibrant in places like Northern Territory where it's so much hotter. And I think nature in general, yeah. you know, is something that this country offers once you actually get away from those bright city lights. I lived for two years in what I affectionately call the armpit of Tasmania. <laughs> um, <laughs> my, my father lived there for a long time and um, was quite entrenched in the area, but it was a tiny, tiny little town called Bishanome on the east coast of Tasmania. And during winter, they had a population of 500. So it was very small. I mean, Tasmania is small, but it was... Very small in comparison. It was probably a three and a half hour drive to Hobart and maybe two and a half to Lonnie. And, you know, in the beginning, coming from Melbourne, coming from university and being at that city boy that you discussed, 101, geez, did it shock me. That's a big culture shift. It shocked me, but it didn't take long, as you say, for me to look around, first of all, at the people in the community and be welcomed and be welcomed kind of effortlessly. Yeah. You know, like there's I kind did, of a non-judgmental yeah. attitude that which surprises was, you. <laughs> which really surprised me yeah. because I always felt more judged and that I had to make more effort in the big cities. Yeah. You know, because there's more... Well, that's where the labels exist and well, where the boxes exist. And because there's a higher swell and concentration of people, belief mm. systems, they're not as hard for people to verbalise. But when you're in a smaller community of, like in my example, 500 people... It, maybe there's some stuff happening internally, but externally people are just really friendly. And then the second thing was the nature, you know. Mm. I mean, Tassie's not quite the big sky, I mean, though it is, but it was the mountains and, you know, the the, oh, the Fresnay no. Coast, you yeah. know, just breathtaking. And, yep. and so you could take yourself there on a day off and actually just hike for four hours and find yourself in ways that you just wouldn't otherwise or I wouldn't otherwise, and I was so enriched by that experience. And I think it's exciting that so many people take the opportunity to get out on the road in Australia and enjoy it. And I try and advocate for people getting out and mm. understanding the country in a new way. Mm. You, you don't get the picture of Australia at all unless you get out into the regions, and you don't really need to travel for many hours, do you, no. to get into areas that are far flung and feel quite isolated. Jeff. Now for the prickly part. This, you may not be able to answer this, but I'm them, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. Best bit in the three years? Well, for me, I've done uh, a few adventurous things in my time. I've done skydiving, scuba diving, skiing, and driving vehicles at uh, the point of almost no return and done all sorts of exciting things. But the most exhilarating and rewarding activity that I've undertaken is swimming with whale sharks in Mingala Reef. So you did get to achieve that, that I dream? I did. It was right at the end of the... The season was meant to be closed and I shopped around, couldn't find anybody taking them out and I went into one outlet and it was about the last ditch effort and there was a guy sitting there said, what are the chances? He said, come out with me tomorrow. If we don't see whale sharks, I'll give you your money back. I said, I can't go wrong. And we had two two visits and it was just enthralling. It was wonderful to be... So close, as close as I am from me to you, with the largest fish in the ocean. Uh, and they just lumber along at a very uh, slow rate, just a metre below the surface. So you don't need scuba gear, it's just a mask and snorkel. And you can actually swim adjacent to them. It's just quite amazing. You just see this dark shadow coming out of the water towards you. You know that it's coming and then it just materialises. It's just fantastic. Wow. So swimming alongside it for... And while they just glide effortlessly and look slow, 
you swing like a threshold yeah. to try to stay. But you do it for a few strokes, and it's, it's quite uh, an amazing experience. Just uh, so that was uh, for me a highlight of the trip. Have you you've scuba dived? Yeah, I do. Oh, I love scuba diving. So I've done quite a bit, and that's fantastic. Turn Exmouth, the Ningaloo Reef is risk of denigrating my home uh, mm-hmm. site. I think it's superior to the Great Barrier Reef. It's yeah. just amazing. Tim Winton would agree with you and certainly writes beautifully about that area of WA and his writing is why I want to go there, to be honest. He's given me a a passion for the place. The far-flung areas of um, of WA certainly have so much to offer and it must be a transformational experience to be underwater with with a, a creature of that size and to be reminded that we're lucky enough to share the world with them is incredible. Yeah, it's quite a moving experience, yes. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And I love that you got to achieve, like, on day one, that was kind of a, in the background goal and nailed it. Mm. And worst bit? Uh, I won't nominate a town, but uh, probably... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Surefire way to lose listeners. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh, I can't think of any to tell you. What about, what about something, rather than worst bit, what about something that you, for example, really missed? Well, okay, actually, do I, something, something's just come to mind whereby travelling through central New South Wales, I wanted to go to a certain location. The option was to travel like 400 metres north or south to try to get to a place that was only about 150 k's due west of me. I thought, there's got to be a way. So I went online and found a shortcut and... Uh, Anyway, I started along this uh, this road and uh, I noticed a couple of vehicles coming towards me, looked questioningly and sort of shaking their heads. <laughs> Why are you on this road with a caravan heading in this direction? And I just waved and smiled and the people were just sort of shaking their heads saying, no, no, oh, he's bonkers. Uh, and uh, after a while, it hit a, hit a mud patch, which was about 40 metres long. And um, actually... Uh, 40 metres? Vehicle bogged the, the, and... Uh, I had to uh, extricate ourselves from that. That took about half an hour of jostling forward and aft and putting stuff under the wheels. Anyway, pushed through that. Thought, good, I'm glad that's behind me. And then, <laughs> and then uh, the road got even worse and just narrowed down to just a track that was just barely wide enough. I thought, where are we now? And I hit, came to this gate and it was locked. And I said, ring, if you've reached here, ring this number. <gasps> so I rang the number and this lady responded said, where are you? I said, I'm at the gate that says to ring this number to get through. I want to get through to, I forget the name of the place I was heading. And she said, that doesn't, road doesn't go there. I said, well, the GPS is this. Well, I tell you, I live on the road. She said, you're towing a, you're in a silver. She saw you. She said, I saw you go past my house. I said, where the heck are you going? I said, well, that's around. She said, I've got the key for that gate, but if I get through it, you will never get through it. You go around that. I said, there's a bend to the left, and I see a hill drops off. She said, yes, I can't go down there with, in my vehicle. So she said, you need to back up. So, And then, of course, down this narrow, so I had to reverse up. So all of my driving skills were put to the test. Of oh course, I had goodness. that mud patch that I'd torn up previously. I had to, to go re- back to through it? Did you get bogged again? I didn't. I didn't. I uh, took a different approach because <laughs> I, I knew what I was in for. So I was managed to. to I was quite <sighs> pleased with myself actually. There was a lot of sideways movement. So that was wow. a frustrating event. So uh, this shortcut cost about four hours. I was back where I started. So it was pretty frustrating. Yeah. Four so Doctor Google is not always right. Is no, the it's answer not. There. We know no. that. We know that though about shortcuts. We know, especially yeah. in this country. Yeah. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Can have you? So I wouldn't say that was a highlight, but again, yeah. it, it, it put me to the test, and I had to uh, 
use all my driving skills to the uh, to the limit. And, Reversing uh, when you're towing is a is a new experience. That's hard. That certainly is, especially yeah, in mud. <laughs> So Do you just, carry chocks that go under your wheels when you need them? Uh, yeah, yeah. well, I've got the uh, tracks. Yeah. Things. yeah. I've got a winch on the vehicle and snatch straps and that sort of thing. So I've got all the cool stuff I need to do. And that sounds like a big part of the answer to not having drama is to be well prepared and have the right stuff. That's right. It's a bit of a problematic thing. So, but some people say, oh, you need to carry spare hoses and belts and universal joints. I'm like, where does it end? Mm. Where, where am I going to put the spare diff? You know, you put the so. <laughs> You have to exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you load up with right. so much stuff that you're overweight and you break something because yes. your vehicle weighs four tons. Yeah. Yes. So you have to be a bit discerning, and uh, but that was good. For me. Actually, so did I, you have to stick under four ton your whole rig? Yeah, there are well, no, no, not four ton. It's uh, well, it, there's various weights that come into this: the weight of the vehicle, the weight of towed vehicle, and then the tail weight. So it's a very convoluted, yeah, arrangement. So, but you need to be aware of that because a lot of people travel overweight. Though I think the estimate is that about 70% of towed vehicles are overweight. And what people don't seem to wow. appreciate is that if you have an accident, the insurance company mm. will be pedantic. And they Absolutely. Paid, and if you're overweight, yep. your insurance is shot. So you can do $200,000. Mm. And that uh, stuff's real hard, clear in your manual, so you've got right. no excuse. People say, oh, but I, I emptied the water tank. It doesn't matter. The insurance company say, we will ass- and I, of my, course my they will. caravan's got 250 litres worth of water, so it's 250 k's. But they're yep. empty. No, we're going to assume they were full because they could have been, and you can tell us they were, but that's it. Prove it because they're empty now because yep. they've been smashed to bits. And the so big problem with that is that all of those vehicles are out there non-compliant, whereas every single truck is compliant or it's off the road. Yeah. So those guys have to comply, and yeah, it's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? Really, really and it, there's not really that much policing, is there, of the of the weight of private vehicles? There's not. There's for years people saying, oh. So and so police force is going to have a blitz on it, but they don't, and they they can't because it's expensive to set up, it's problematic, it's time consuming, and it just doesn't have a return on it. So, but there's no excuse for doing it because there's no way bridges around. You can go and and I would do it regularly every time I made major changes or had things in, put on the van or the car. I was find a way bridge. So I mean, just check that you're legal. Yes, yeah. it's, it's just critical, and so many people don't. They really. Uh, plus, they're, they're putting themselves and others at risk because there's a reason there's weight limits. Oh, that's right. It's just vehicles are they're unstable enough, let alone having mm-hmm. a vehicle that's all out of whack and too heavy at the, at the back end. So it's really important. But I um, uh, organised a, a convoy up through Cape York. Uh, we did a trip to um, central Queensland where the, the caravan that I own have a, an annual gathering and... Uh, one of the guys organised a convoy up to North Queensland, finished at Atherton. I said, oh, well, I've always wanted to do Cape York, so I put some feelers out, about eight people. I said, who wants to go to Cape York? And eight people said, yep, we'll come with you. He said, good, I'm leaving the trip. They said, what's it like up there? I said, I don't know, I've never been. Have you? <laughs> None of us had. We'll but, find out. But one, yeah. of, one of the things I did was I identified how many winches we had and what sort of equipment we had. So I knew that within our convoy of seven vehicles – we had at least one of everything we would need. So I positioned the convoy so that winches were at front and rear. So it was quite a, a good fun exercise. I've done that sort of thing in the military as well. I know, I can really see them here and see the military coming through there. Goodness me. That's right. And I was very strict on the radio protocols as well. So <laughs> stop talking about the trees, ladies. We're here to talk about traffic, please. <laughs> But that was great fun. Doing Cape York was it was a real hoot. So it was good. Does your caravan have a name, Jeff? No, no, I'm not. I'm not one for that. No, but it's very appropriate for me. It is a trooper caravan, which I quite like. I like that. That that suits you very much. It did play into the purchasing process to something, but I don't. It's not Harry or. 
or Maud. He had no idea what I was talking about when I was telling him about Norman. I was chatting away and then I realised, he said, who is Norman? (laughs) Oh, that's the vehicle, actually. Yeah. And um, where is Trooper today? In the garage. Uh, The house that we bought is what they call an RV home, so it's got a a large garage that's uh, sitting in a house. Do you take take Trooper out still? Trooper gets out of it. And that's fascinating, isn't it, that there are developments around the Sunshine Coast and elsewhere that recognise that people have and want to be using big RVs or caravans, and so they're providing accommodation for exactly that on site. It's great. Mm, So they should. Yeah. There's one in Maribyrnong. It's a a huge, actually. The the garage is 24 metres deep, so you can have a a four-wheel caravan hooked up, parked, and that's it. Yep. So you're going to drive it straight out. Mm. Wowzers. Those developers know their market. Well, and they're hitting for it. Jeff, this has been absolutely enlightening for me. Unlike yourself for three plus years and even Michelle going back and forth on the Nullarbor, I think the longest motorhome, well, I don't think I've ever even slept a night in a motorhome or a caravan, but I think the longest trip I've ever done would be the old Hume from Sydney to Melbourne. Yeah. Whereas you're the international traveller, aren't you? How many countries have you been to? Well, not to, not to show off, but 63. <laughs> It's amazing. Uh, Travel agent extraordinaire. But I will say, you know, I'm inspired by hearing this story and I'm, you know, I'm very similar to you in the 70s, you know, like I'm 42 in my 20s and 30s. I wasn't, and I think this is kind of natural, I wasn't particularly excited by seeing Australia, but seeing the world, you know, getting out there and seeing the world, the bigger picture I was. But now as I found myself having roots and, and more foundations where I live and really connecting to my community where I am in the hinterland, I am far more interested now to actually drive, you know, up to 100Ks radius of where I live and and see the little townships Mm -hmm. and go to the little cafes. And I'm sure that's going to increase, you know, the radius of that will increase as I get older. And I'm hearing your stories and I'm inspired. I want to sit in the hot pools of Marie. Was it Marie? Maury. Maury. I gave it a bit of an edge. You go there for hot spas and cotton, I think. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think think it sounds... Freeing. Yeah. There's this kind of freedom to the experience that you're having, which is, I think, different than if, than you have overseas, because overseas you are experiencing the culture firsthand, but in Australia you are exploring your own backyard culture. In a self sufficient way when you've got your house on your back, too. That's Mm. the other thing that, um, although RV holidays are very, very popular in the US as well, aren't they? And New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, I'm inspired, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming in today. It's yeah, been really interesting. Was, was there anything else that you wanted to share with us that we didn't touch on? Or, or? Oh, no, well, I would just uh, endorse and encourage uh, everybody to get out there and, and have a look and find some spots that they really want to visit and, uh, yeah, do it and uh, enjoy it. And speaking of hot springs, just one, one quick anecdote. In the Northern Territory, there's a hot springs I went to and uh, went there in the afternoon. It was quite busy and, and well populated with people with their... Uh, floaty strips and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And I decided it'd be nice to go there in the morning. So the next morning I got up nice and early. I was arrived at this, it's a creek that's free flowing and it's a hot spring water. And it was about seven o'clock in the morning and there was nobody there. And there's this massive overgrowth of beautiful, lush, tropical stuff. And the water was just slightly flowing and the steam was coming off it because of the morning light. It was just an absolutely idyllic. The, the sun was low in the sky, so it's filtering through all of the trees. It was just an absolutely spectacular view. I got in the water with a mask and snorkels and just do a drift mm-hmm. snorkel down for, for about 200 metres. And as I'm heading down there, there was a big hollow that was about three or four metres deep and there's turtles at the bottom of the <sighs> and this sort of thing. And all the, the fish were out there feeding. And because I was just 
basically motionless. The wildlife was just acting as if nobody was around. It was just so oh, different to wow. the afternoon promise. Just absolutely stunning. I got to the end, got out at the bottom, walked back to the start point, just got in again. Did it again. I did it all again, and I got up for the second time around, and there was people walking down the path said, that's it, I'm going. I'm done. Yeah. But that was just absolutely spectacular. That sounds magical. It's near Mataranka Hot Springs, which are great, a bit commercialised, but if you're there, go the extra 10k, find that spot, and that's life-changing. Just a moment. Wow. Communion with nature. I love it. Mm. Michelle, let's buy an RV tomorrow and hit the road, girl. Oh, we're out of here. I love <laughs> it. I'm very inspired. Thank you so much, Jeff. You know, Jeff has inspired me, Michelle, to jump straight into my Matthew's Monday mood. Hot springs of Maury, not Mari. The hot springs of Moree and and then the beautiful hot springs that he just mentioned up north where he got to float by the turtles. I have been in a few hot springs in my life and yes, there's something in the minerals there that just get into our skin and dare I say it, into our souls. Mm, that communion with nature is something that we can really achieve quite easily when we jump into a hot spring, isn't it? Yeah, and the mood that I'm going to give you is is can be extended all the way to having a bath. Let's be a little bit more kind to ourselves and give us those moments of relaxation and connection. A bath is generally a solitary experience or activity. And, you know, when you're in that bath, in that warm water or in the hot spring, you do have a moment to breathe and you do have a moment to connect. And so my mood, everyone, today is to give yourself a little bit more of that. Whether you can get into Maury's hot springs or whether you need to run yourself a bath tonight, my mood is to give yourself that gift. Oh, I like that a lot. I think I'm going to go home and slip into a bath. I'd like to share then my Michelle's moist moment. And what's your moist moment, Michelle? I'm a little bit moist for Mithridate. Mithridate is a, um, an interesting historical cure-all. It's a universal antidote or a medicinal preparation with seemingly endless healing and restorative powers. Mm. The term comes from the name of Mithridates VI. He was a first century BCE king. Just a moment, Michelle. BCE. So BCE is the new way of saying BC. So BC was before Christ. Mm -hmm. So BC is before common era. And the common era replaces AD, which was Anno Domini or after Jesus' death. And respectfully, I never understood it. I always thought it was Anno Domino's and it wouldn't make me, I wanted to play Domino's. (laughs) Or get a Domino's pizza. I didn't get it. (laughs) So Mithridates, he was around the first century BCE. He was the king of the ancient kingdom of Pontus. He was supposedly so fearful of being poisoned because that was a pretty common way of knocking off a king back then. His father and his father's predecessor all been poisoned Poisoned. before him. Over many years, he deliberately microdosed with a poison. He thought, I'll inoculate myself. Oh, my goodness. So just a little sip here and there. Ever increasing amounts, though. He thought, I'm getting tolerant to this. I'll keep knocking down the hemlock. So he gradually built up a natural immunity to these particular poisons. Wow. This is a process that's also known as Mithridatism. Which is very um, pertinent today because the research going into microdosing is through the roof, my yep. love. Psilocybin, etc. and I'm very, very excited by that research. His plan apparently worked. 
Mithridate because he did definitely develop a tolerance. Only problem was after his kingdom fell to the Romans around 66 BCE, Mithridates and his family decided to commit suicide rather than to be captured and executed by the Roman general Pompey. What happened was that instead of instead of allowing the, the Romans to do terrible things to his family, they all decided to knock themselves off. Through poison? Instead of being captured and executed probably in horrible ways by Pompey. So he and his wife and their two daughters oh. all drank vials of poison. But surely not the vial that he'd been microdosing on. He thought he'd give it a go. He had some in his back pocket or, or in the larder. So the problem was that by this point, Mithridates was so immune to the poison's effects, he survived. He just had a wee. And exactly. And he watched his entire family die around him. Oh, no. Lying there thinking, I'll go soon, I'll go soon. There goes both of my daughters. I'm not, I'm not knocked off yet. There goes my wife. What'd he do? He was left with little option but to ask one of his own guards. To knock him off. Wow. Well, there we go. You're moist about that, Michelle. Well, I'm moist about the I'm moist about the background to words. So the idea of Mithridates being the origin of a Mithridate, which mm. is a, a heal oil, a, a wonderful restorative. That the background to that word is a little bit sad, but also very, very interesting. Super interesting. Mm, I'm moist for that interesting. Well, thanks for sharing your moistness. As always, it's welcome here. <laughs> Glad to share the moisture. And, dear valued listener, we would very much like to thank Jeff Connolly, who popped in to regale us with his tales of his motorhome life. Yes, I've got a very interesting uncle. Mm, and, um, you know, we really hope that uh, you guys enjoyed having a guest star in to um, expand and explore on the word motorhome. And before we let you go today, we just want to remind everyone to please like and subscribe us on your Spotify. And should you need a bit more M&M in your life, you can find us on Instagram. And that's at M&M or Mandem, the podcast, M-A-N-D-E-M, the podcast. And uh, until next time, Michelle, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm obsessed with you. And just having you back within reach is glorious. Marvellous. So that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.